I'm the Reverend Kat Benakis, and this is the Holy Holy Podcast. In this season, we're looking at economic and social justice issues in Chicago. And today, we're speaking about a sliver of the immigration debate in this country, unaccompanied minors. There's an organization in the northwest suburbs of Chicago that's working on a response, the Viator House of Hospitality. Viator House is run by two clerics of the Society of St. Viator, Michael Gorsh and Corey Brost. I spoke with Father Brost in his so-called office. It's a desk next to some sectional sofas off of a rec room that has constant soccer matches going. There's yelling in every language and a steady stream of teenage boys walking through, jostling each other. The wall is papered with flags of all the current and former residents' home countries that they've fled. Flags from Africa, Asia, and Central and South America. Vider House is a response to the crisis of the flow of unaccompanied minor immigrant children to our nation. Uh, about 50,000 young people, minors without adults, have come to our national borders, the southern border, over for the last several years uh, because they have been fleeing violence and horrendous uh, despair from all around the world and looking for some opportunity to build a life. Quite often, they're sent by their parents with whatever, whatever money their parents can get together, either by selling little plots of land or borrowing from relatives. What happens when these young people come to our country is they are put into youth immigrant shelters that are funded by the federal government. Under federal law, they cannot be housed with adult immigrants in immigrant detention centers. So they they are instead uh, put into youth immigrant shelters that are detention centers, yet a more gentle form of detention. And the centers are funded by the federal government, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, but administered by licensed child care, um, licensed child care agencies. So in these centers, young people will have the opportunity to learn, go to school in the center itself, um, get some counseling, get medical care. And one of the number one goals of the workers in the center is to identify, if possible, some family member somewhere in the U.S. where these young people can live until their hearing or asylum interview takes place. And that might be a year or two or more. Like the parents and children we've heard about being separated at the border recently, these teenagers also are seeking asylum trying to prove at some point in the future, sometimes waiting for years to try and prove it and plead their case, that they will be persecuted if they return home. But these teenagers are coming without adults. They come on their own. The the asylum process is so incredibly backed up that 
a young person can be in the country two years plus before that young person even has an interview uh, where he or she has the opportunity to make an argument, hopefully with an attorney, but not guaranteed to a a federal official uh, that that he or she will be persecuted upon um, deportation. What happens, which is the real tragedy in our system, is uh, at the age of 18, a young person is no longer a, a youth under the law, so that young person can no longer live in a youth immigrant detention shelter. At, uh, so on the 18th birthday, uh, agents from Immigration and Customs Enforcement will come to a shelter and shackle uh, the young immigrant by by his hands, by his feet, and take him or her to an adult immigrant detention center. In the Chicago area, that would be a county jail on the Collar Counties where the federal government is paying about 130 to $150 a night. I'm not sure on the exact number. Uh, to the county, so the county can house immigrants who are waiting for hearings or subject to deportation. So um, we are a response in that by working with uh, federal officials, working with attorneys representing young men, we have become recognized as a legitimate option for these young men to be released to the night before their 18th birthday, as if we're family. And so these young men are released to us, and then they're free, you know, and they, ha- they, they like being bonded out. They have to pursue their asylum hearing dates, but they're out of detention. We're a small agency trying to respond as best we can to a little part, a little bit of a big, big problem. I mean, in the Chicago area alone, there are about 10 immigrant youth shelters. 500 plus kids are in the Chicago area alone who are in these shelters. And we house right now 18 young men we have room for five more so we are a we're a small response but at least we are responding and doing what we can and these young men here are going to school uh they're they have access to counseling medical care support um a large volunteer community of around 70 plus people who are tutors mentors here they have the opportunity to start to build something. They have an opportunity to, to maybe hope, an opportunity to heal, an opportunity to dream. And hopefully, God willing, they will uh, win their cases and they'll be able to maybe move out on their own and, and, uh, and thrive. From a purely like pragmatic logistics perspective, the, the residents here are from all over mm-hmm. the world. 
how did they actually get into the country through Central and South America or Canada, knowing that they had to come such long distances as children? Like, how does that work? It blows my mind when I think about it, but I will tell you one story without naming a name. Young man from Africa who will graduate high school this month because he's here and not sitting in a detention center. Comes home from school in his African home and uh, soldiers are beating his mom because his family's part of the wrong political party. He tries to stop them and they beat him. And then they, in essence, inform his parents that, you know what, get out of this political activism or we'll do worse to him. So at the age of 17, his parents get his money together and he's able to fly to South America with the plans of making it to the U.S. At each border, he is able to pay a little bit to a smuggler or guide who either walks him to the next border or gets him on a bus. That includes walking days or weeks through a jungle in Panama that separates Central America from South America and has no road. In that um, jungle, uh, because of the injuries sustained when the soldiers beat him that did not heal correctly, he falls behind the migrant group and they leave him because that's what happens. And he's lost he for days prepares to die. Jungle. Another migrant group comes and he's able to keep up with them. And he makes it through the jungle. Later on in his journey in Nicaragua, he pays another guide to walk through another jungle. The guide abandons the group. They're in the jungle for several days until he is able to find a way to the road to go back to the border where he actually goes back to the smuggler and demands his money back. And he gets most of it back. Along the journey, he sees young people die who can't, who slip off cliffs. Um, he finally, he makes it to the U.S. and turns himself in and asks for asylum. That is the common journey for our young people from Africa and Asia. All these young men that you see have been through similar horrendous experiences. We talk about them being traumatized in three stages. At home, otherwise, why would they flee? And what parent, imagine that Sophie's choice, where literally, you know, do you hold on to your child thinking that you'll be with him, but he may or she may be killed because of uh, what's going on in the country? Or do you, do you try to risk sending her or him away knowing you they may not make it alive and you'll probably never see him again but it, uh, that might be the best option uh, it reminds me a lot of the the kinder transport of Jewish children in the 30s from Nazi Germany when when Jewish parents paid to send their kids to England um, before life got so bad that they couldn't send them out. Uh, so the, our guys have been traumatized at home. They've been traumatized along the way. And then detention, even in a youth immigrant shelter, it's detention. 
what we do here is our number one goal is one is we give them freedom and then we number two we give them safety and number three we give them agency the ability to direct their own lives they are here because they want to be here they are free to go at any time they agree to live according to a basic covenant you know how regarding how you treat each other and no drugs alcohol etc but no but those three things are what guide us freedom safety agency well i, I guess that's showing their opportunity um i would throw that in there too should know this but I don't what are the odds that someone's asylum case gets approved the odds always go up when there's an attorney involved and under our system you know immigrants have no right to an attorney um, but uh, there are some incredible agencies out there that provide attorneys to young immigrants and you know even adult immigrants so our guys all have attorneys, and so their odds go up dramatically. Nonetheless, you, you win not by proving that your country is plagued by violence. You win by proving that that violence is a specific threat to you because of your beliefs, your social groupings, your history. And so it comes down to a lot of specific evidence that shows your involvement in a party or your your identity or evidence that shows you were hospitalized or beaten or threatened i'll tell you though and this is frightening to me our young men from central america will have a much harder time i try not to think too much about that in the sense that it's really frightening (laughs) Our country has been reluctant to recognize fleeing from gang violence as a, a reason for asylum. And uh, it's a harder argument to make. Try not to think about that. And then, but then I think about our guys. You, just, you, you end up loving these kids as if they're your own. And we are all they have in the U.S., To help us think through these questions, I'm joined by two fabulous interfaith panelists. I'm Lauren Henderson. I am a rabbi at a community called Mishkan Chicago, which is a Jewish community here. And I'm Changiz Geula. I am a Baha'i, a member of the Baha'i faith. And I was asked by the governing body of the Baha'is of Chicago to be here and uh, represent the Baha'is of Chicago. We began by talking through what our traditions say about refugees and immigrants broadly. I think this of any area in the Torah is has the single most focus. Like this is the most often repeated line in the Torah is you shall love the stranger as yourself. And typically, I mean, one of my teachers, Rabbi Shai Held, says that 
this word in Hebrew, ger, um, which is often translated as stranger, is actually best translated as refugee. Hmm. Um, because what we're understanding with that word is someone that has relocated from their home to a place where they don't have any rights. Um, they don't have the same protections as the citizen. And the Torah is saying many times, we were once strangers. We, the Israelite people, relocated from the land of Canaan into Egypt, had a good life there for a little while, then were put in slavery because we were in this vulnerable position, because we weren't full citizens, were eventually freed, but then had to go around for millennia traveling and searching for a home. And I think because that experience, we have that experience that's personal or historical, in historical mm -hmm. memory, our job is to never forget that there are always people that are in that same position. Um, and it, often the Torah will lump together these other vulnerable categories. So it will say, remember the ger, the, the refugee, the widow, and the orphan, over and over again. These are all people that we have to watch out for because they don't have the protections of family. They don't have the protections of law. Um, and they're liable to be trampled on and abused. Yeah, it's interesting. Christianity has adapted the concept in some ways of having been um, lost in the desert and having uh, the, the Exodus story in our past, but has more latched on to the concept that uh, Christianity is a faith um, without geographic boundaries, right? From mm -hmm. the beginning, we were a faith of converts um, and frequently people who were trying to carve something out in different foreign lands. And the whole beginning of how Christianity spread is the story of how it spread um, both in the Middle East, but then also in uh, what later became Europe and how they navigated that uh, from all these different geopolitical boundaries and traditions to be a faith that was navigating different cultures throughout time because there isn't uh, historically that same sense of placeness right. in, in the Christian tradition. Yeah. And uh, in the same token, the... Baha'i faith is also a very global religion, primarily because of the principles that Baha'u'llah brought uh, that govern relationships among humanity. This uh, principle of the oneness of humanity, that we are all, regardless of background, race, economic status, uh, really brothers and sisters, uh, has to find expression in our daily life, meaning that then it doesn't matter who the person is, if they're a refugee or not refugee, because you know one can be a refugee in, its, in one's own community, essentially. Regardless of where they come from, we must associate and embrace all. Hmm. And this beyond uh, borders, nationality, uh, ethnicity, and all of those factors that tend to divide us. Nationality obviously has its place because we all live within boundaries. But then what about the person who lives just beyond? They're part of humanity too. So embracing all uh, with this uh, practice of spiritual qualities, right? Kindness and looking for justice for all is really the bedrock of a, a spiritual life as a Baha'i. And and certainly all of our religions have 
expressions throughout the world that are going to be similar but different depending on where it is. So I'm not as familiar with the history of the Baha'i faith, and I imagine that a number of listeners might not be either. Um, Was was the faith born out of any time of political strife? Uh, So many of our faiths know political strife in our past. Is that true in Baha'i as well? Well, very much so. Uh, the Baha'i faith was born in Iran uh, close to 160 years ago. And uh, there was the forerunner to the Baha'i faith, uh, referred to as the Bab, which means the gate. He (laughs) was, in a sense, like John the Baptist. He said that he has come to prepare the way for the coming of another, but he also brought his own religion. A very revolutionary religion compared to what was happening at the time. And immediately he was opposed and the following of uh, his religion expanded and they were all persecuted uh, unanimously. Hundreds of thousands of people uh, were put out from the cities they were living. Many were killed and executed and the Bab himself was actually executed. And shortly after his execution, Baha'u'llah declared his mission in Iran again, and he was immediately imprisoned, exiled. He lived most of his life in exile from one city to another, from one prison to another, all over. In those days, that was the Ottoman Empire, which is now encompasses Turkey and Iraq and Syria and all those. And they kept sending him farther and farther to quelch his influence. And eventually, they sent him to uh, Akka uh, in Jindiark, which was this fortress where they would send assassins and people to essentially go perish. And uh, Baha'u'llah was sent there, but his following increased throughout the world. Again, his followers were persecuted very severely. Uh, Where he passed away is now part of Israel. So the Baha'i holy places very interesting, are all in Israel. (laughs) Haifa is the resting place of the Bab, and across the bay in Akka is the resting place of Baha'u'llah. And the Baha'i World Center and the Baha'i International Administrative Body is actually on Mount Carmel (laughs) in Israel. And you have probably heard that after the revolution, then this wave of persecution of Baha'is came back with more severe intensity. Many Baha'is were killed. And to this day, Baha'is are living with severe restrictions in Iran in particular. So, Lauren, I was curious, Bruce talks about, he makes this parallel between what parents are doing in um, some of the more ravaged countries of the world right now mm-hmm. in sending their children off in hopes that they will somehow be granted asylum in the U.S. after these horrible journeys over multiple years. And he makes a parallel between that and uh, the kinder transport mm-hmm. uh, pre and during the Holocaust. Is that a fair parallel, do you think? Yeah. I mean, so the kinder transport started in November 1938, I think five days after Kristallnacht, this night of the broken glass when throughout Germany and Austria, people ravaged shops and stores and broke Jewishly owned places of business. And so there was a whole group of British folks and, and Jews and Quakers who 
came together five days in the aftermath of this and went to the British Prime Minister, um, Neville Chamberlain, and said, we have to get kids out. This this is not, we can see what's coming down the pike. We can see this is not safe. And so gradually petitioned the government over years and ultimately, I think, brought 10,000 children wow. into, and, and saved 10,000 children from the Holocaust, which, I mean, in in the grand scheme is, is huge. And also we know that millions and millions of lives were lost. And so... In terms of the current refugee crisis, I'm thinking like there are so many communities of, I think, many different faiths and backgrounds here in the U.S. today who are petitioning our government saying, raise these caps. Like we, you know, during the Obama administration, we saw so much of a push to try to absorb. We knew that we had a capacity to absorb as many refugees as possible. And yet now in this current administration, this cap has been lowered and we're not even getting to the numbers that we that we had set for ourselves. Um, and I just wonder, with in the current climate where there's so much tension around, do we have the capacity to support more immigrants and refugees in this country? What, How do we share our resources with one another? How, how faith communities can start to change the narrative here? Like, this is, we are living in this time of incredible abundance, and we can support far more life um, than we have ever been able to before. And yet there's such a narrative around scarcity. And 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 as we know, I mean, Father Brost, who I know personally, who is a wonderful human being, just tells this story of how horrible the situation is for folks that are they're going for thousands and thousands of miles to find safety and refuge and to just save like one life. This is this is another, I think, pillar of the Jewish tradition is this concept that to save one life is akin to saving an entire world. Hmm. I think this actually a very similar line appears in the Islamic scriptures, too. It's like almost a parallel text. Um, and to destroy one life is if you've destroyed an entire world. And so that's the kind of operating principle that we fall under is every single life has, has value. And how do, we, how do we create a society based around that? And also when Brost was talking about there's um – it is much less likely for someone from Central America to be granted asylum because they cannot prove in the same way that they will be killed because of gangs versus geopolitical warfare. I, I do wonder if there's an opportunity for faith communities to be able to say, uh, we we trust you at your word that you will be killed. Mm-hmm. And, and here's how we can respond right. in some meaningful way. There's another part of the entire equation, if you will. And one is how, as individuals in faith communities, are we going to be able to help any ethnic group, any individual nationality uh, living in any part of the world to empower themselves to be agents of change? Mm -hmm. Because as you know, in development, and we have now decades of experience, bringing concepts from somewhere else and imposing them on a population with all kinds of money thrown at it or everything does not work. So the main principle is how can we empower, how can we build capacity in every individual to change themselves, to be in charge of their own life, if you will, but also to be agents of change in their own community, not in terms of fighting and killing, but in terms of constructive 
change that can bring about the type of community that doesn't uh, require people to migrate from mm -hmm. it and become refugees yeah. somewhere else so that they can find a decent life. Because most refugees would not want to move from their right. home. They want to be home. Right. So what is that ground movement going to be like? And what is the uh, requirement from followers of various religions to actually be contributing to that in unifying, in a unified manner, in recognizing the contribution that those people yes. can make to their own community rather than saying, well, you are this and you are that and separating, right? Uniting, but also empowering. And that's really something, you know, based on the value of every human being. Right. Sadly, we have to come to an end. But before we do, I ask Chengiz and Lauren for any final thoughts or wisdom on this important topic. Baha'u'llah says, Regard ye not one another as strangers. Ye are the fruits of one tree and the leaves of one branch. And he also says, um, Glory not in this that you love your country. Rather, glory in this that you love the world. Mm -hmm. So this expansive concept of, you know, we are all one humanity. You know, the, the Jewish wisdom that I hold is always trying to figure out what do we do with competing values and how do we care for um, mm. how do we care for folks when we know resources are scarce mm. and when we often feel like there's not enough and kind of establishes this sense of concentric circles of of who we're obligated to and the home and our communities um, and then our cities and then our faith community and then the whole entire world. And there's never any sense that that has like a finite limit. Um, but this sense of like we live in tension with supporting ourselves and supporting folks whose lives will never touch our own. And um, and I think it's a powerful tension to, to live in. And I think my, my prayer is that we are constantly working to relieve that sense of scarcity and just to have access to the abundance that our world has given us, that, that we that we can support all of the life flourishing on this planet. Thanks to Father Corey Brost and the folks at the Viator House of Hospitality. If you'd like to learn more about Viator House, you can visit their website, viatorhouseofhospitality.com. Thanks also to Chengiz Gayula, Lauren Henderson, the production team at the WBEZ Studios in Chicago, where we record our panel, and to David Dalt for his editing and production help. Our next episode will be the final episode in this series on social justice and economic issues in Chicago, and it will be on the cost of childcare. Please join us. Until then, peace be with you. <laughs>